0: Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And
1: I am Louise Palanker.
0: Here on Media Path, we search for new items like books and movies and television shows, internet content, any platform. We talk about them. And maybe if we've piqued your interest, we give you ideas where you can find other material on the same topics. Plus, we have astounding guests like we do today, a very successful, very entertaining human. He is truly. One of the genuine people in the vast wasteland of insincerity known as show business, (laughs) Tim Conway Jr. Can't wait to talk to Tim. He's up in a few minutes. But Wheezy, what is your content this
1: week? Oh, I was watching content because this is what we do. We're home and we watch content. Those are our appointed duties. So I watched a little program. It's really kind of like a romantic teen comedy, but I watched it on Netflix. It's called Dash and Lily. And this is a, a little series. The episodes are very, very short, like 23 minutes. And so they're bite-sized, and you, so you just keep eating. It's a dreamy whirlwind Christmas romance, and it progresses as two quirky teens trade clues, dares, fears, and wishes through a notebook that they pass back and forth at romantic locales around New York City. So they don't meet until the end, and uh, it's just quite adorable. The writing is, is sharp. And it's funny. And it's just a sweet and fun and cozy and bursting with New York City charm, sort of like a When Harry Met Sally Jr.
0: Wow. Well, we need that. That's what I thought about The Prom. You know, I thought I was all prepared not to like it. And then I thought, no, this is like, this is like back teen on a scratch. It Mm -hmm. felt really good.
1: Yeah, well, that's a good tapping.
0: Yeah. I have two documentaries this week. The first one is called Joe Bonamassa Guitar Man. It's on video on demand and Prime Video. I'm a huge blues fan. And this is the story of Joe Bonamassa. He is probably the preeminent blues guy working right now. He's a guitarist, he's had 22 number one blues albums. Blues is a, a very specific and narrowing genre of music getting kind of this is really unfortunate less popular all the time and joe has succeeded in building his own huge following i mean he fills arenas with these shows like red rocks amphitheater and the royal albert hall where mr clapton joins him on stage for some awesome concert footage you hear other blues greats in here like bb king and john lee hooker bonamassa was a wonderkin as a matter of fact he played and it's a it's a recorded concert with B.B. King, when he was 12, he was just scary fast and soulful when he was a preteen. Now, I had tickets to see him at the Greek Theater last aug- August 1st. COVID blew that up. So they're honoring our tickets next August 1st. Oh, he's and coming I over to your house. He's he's coming over to my house, which yeah. will be unbelievable. Now, if you're a fan of the blues or you're a virtuoso guitar playing a, a, aficionado, you need to check this out. It's lots of blues rock. It's not the hardcore Mississippi Delta blues. It's it's like blues rock. And if you like that one, my follow-up suggestion would be check out Eric Clapton's documentary called Life in 12 Bars, which is, he's the preeminent guy. Still in England someplace, they have Clapton as God spray painted on the subway walls over there. And he's the standard bearer. So this is a really Good one from a an amazing guitar player.
1: I wanted to uh, ask you a question uh, about the the Joe Bonamassa movie because there's really nothing that extraordinary about his life or his childhood other than he was a prodigy who was well parented and well launched, and I think that gave him the tools to find his voice. And it, it the movie kind of shows you that it's not enough to just be a genius. You also have to figure out how to construct a career. And he was always surrounding himself with great people. And that contributed uh, to his ultimate success. It's a, It's a slow burn towards success for Joe.
0: Yeah. He had the guy that helped Frank Sinatra build his early career. And again, he's doing it in a music genre that's getting less and less popular all the time. So how do you carve out the largest possible audience in this type of music, that isn't everybody's cup of tea. But the thing is, he crosses over and has a yeah. big band in back of him. He's got that guy that uh, used to play drums at the David Letterman show. I think his name oh, is Anton Fig. Anton Fig.
1: Yeah, and he stretches and he and he moves and he genre bends and he gets into like a lot of uh, melody and harmony and and just and and the guy can really sing, and so he's, that and was he's, a, that was a big step for him because he's an he grew
0: astonishing up. guitar player. What you yeah. do is you just uh, you know you you realize that in prodigies like the uh, ever-present uh, youthful Japanese violin virtuoso or one of those people, this is just God's hand doing work with these people. How does this even happen? It's unbelievable.
1: But no matter how good you are, you still need to build your voice and you need mm-hmm. great people around you.
0: Right. What else you got for number two?
1: Oh, so for me, I, I'm reading a, a nerdy book called Daughters of Yalta. It is uh, available on Amazon, where you will find many books. Uh, Daughters of Yalta is the untold story of three intelligent and glamorous young women who accompanied their famous fathers to the Yalta Conference in February of 1945. As World War II was winding down, the peace was painstakingly planned by rival allies FDR, Churchill, and Stalin. The conference's fateful reverberations have been impacting us ever since. Catherine Grace Katz uncovers the dramatic story of Anna Roosevelt, Sarah Churchill, and Kathy Harriman's trip to war-shaken Crimea with their father's FDR, Winston Churchill, and our ambassador to Russia, Avril Harriman. Each young woman bound by fierce family loyalty, political savvy, overlapping romances, and the importance of this shared historical moment. And I will tell you something, Fritz, you know how our media paths often kind of inspire us to go uh, down a frolic of our own, down a neighboring path. I uh, It compelled me mm-hmm. to rewatch Ken Burns' The Roosevelts, An Intimate History. Have you watched that?
0: I've seen it like four times. I think yeah. it's, it's one of the greatest pieces of American history ever put on film.
1: Yeah, it, it that really is. And that's a documentary series from director Ken Burns. It explores the lives of Theodore Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. Three members of the most prominent and influential family in American politics. The 14 hour series follows the trio for more than a century from Theodore's birth in 1858 to Eleanor's death in 1962. During these years, the Roosevelts helped shape history, notably the creation of our national parks, the digging of the Panama Canal, the passage of the New Deal programs, World War II, the United Nations, and progress in the civil rights movement. Highly recommended.
0: Yeah, that was so interesting because you had Churchill and Roosevelt and Stalin. And then shortly after that, they became arch enemies and it was the beginning of the Cold War. So, Oh, yeah. yeah. Stalin never...
1: just, he lied his way through the conference. He's yeah. their me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. My second one is a doc also. Jimmy Carter, rock and roll president. Yes. CNN Films did this. It's being broadcast this Sunday, uh, January 3rd on CNN. It's been available on video on demand, a prime video for a long time. Jimmy Carter had been governor of Georgia, and he decided he wanted to run for president. The problem was nobody outside Georgia knew who this dude was, and he had no money. So he had, over his career, befriended all the major Southern rock bands, like the Marshall Tucker Band, the Allman Brothers, Dickie Betts, Willie Nelson, and others, and they did fundraisers for him which did two things. It helped him raise money, and more importantly, it raised awareness about him through these huge Southern rock band fan bases. Really smart marketing. Lots of great commentary in this film by Jimmy Buffett and Garth Brooks, Roseanne Cash, Larry Gatlin, and Bob Dylan. Now, Bob Dylan usually avoids connection to politicians, right? But he talks on camera about this, and he admits that when he first met Carter, he was so impressed because... Carter's got a photographic memory and was quoting back Dylan's lyrics to him from even obscure songs, and this blew Bob Dylan away. And President Carter said that uh, Dylan's words were inspirational to him in quiet and lonely moments, and so Dylan was very important to him. There's great concert footage from all the bands I've talked about. The film is more evidence of what is already common knowledge that this man had his greatest successes after he got out of office. And they talked about what brought him down, the Iran uh, Iran, uh, hostage crisis. And I'm telling you, no matter what your politics are, you will appreciate this man who was honest and a godly man. He was just a moral person. He even admitted his son smoked pot on the White House roof with Willie Nelson, and he was smiling while he told the story. It was great. If you're interested in President Carter, I also recommend another documentary called Desert One. This was a documentary that was a postmortem to the failed hostage rescue during the Carter administration. So those are my two two films. My
1: favorite moment in the Carter documentary was when Larry Gatlin says that the, the the. the mood and the temperament of the people isn't written by politicians or commentators or journalists. It's written by songwriters. And it, it's a it's a great barometer. What songwriters are writing, the lyrics that they're writing, is a great barometer of how people feel in any given moment in history. Yeah,
0: it's really, it's very touching. And again, it's great, great American history. And you contrast it to all the turmoil we're in now. It's just like, a oh, look at that. Isn't that quaint? You know, you look back and it's easy, but it was
1: hard then. I, I mean, every every period that we push through is 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 fraught. So
0: yeah, well, let me bring our fantastic guest out. Here yes. is a Southern California radio legend, born and raised in Los Angeles. He he calls the t- <laughs> he calls <laughs> the time he spent in the Los Angeles Unified School District like ten years in a youth detention center, <laughs> while other kids are scouting and playing pop water football. He spent a lot of his youth at Santa Anita, Hollywood Park, and Del Mar racetracks. And we'll get him to talk about his family's connection to horse racing. Started his career with the show on the internet, built a huge following, spent 12 years at 97.1 KLSX in Los Angeles, and now has a very successful career at KF5 646 to 10 o'clock weekdays. He's won a Golden Mike and Edward R. Murrow Award. He is the most entertaining guy on the radio funny, but more importantly, and I think this is why people love him. He's down to earth. He is the no bullshit guy. That's why I love him. Tim Conway Jr. Tim, hey, thanks you. for coming on.
2: You know, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. By the way, I have that same shirt. <laughs> Do you really? Yeah, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to Louise.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say I hope you're wearing it less frequently than I am during this yeah. pandemic.
2: I, I'm I'm also reading, you know, during the uh the um, Christmas break here, if I can still call it that. <laughs> I'm reading. I'm reading the daughters of Caitlyn. Uh, Caitlyn Jenner. <laughs> a little, a little different book.
1: <laughs> um,
2: only about 12
0: pages. I think uh, it's just
1: as historically revel- relevant. A lot of thing. pictures. Yeah, a lot of pictures. Um, hey, I left but, one
0: really important thing off before we get started, and I, I, you know, although you have had this astonishing career, I can't leave out your dad. You, you, of course, are the son of one of the. Funniest people in the history of television, Tim Conway from the Carol Burnett Show and over a hundred TV appearances. One of the world's great talk show guests, the son of Tim Conway. And Thank you're a you, huge sir. family. How many brothers and sisters do you have?
2: Uh, I have four younger brothers and an older sister. So Did your dad six of know
1: us. all of your names?
2: You know, he he knew our names, but uh <laughs> he was he was Euchred if you ever asked them what one of our teachers' names were. Mm. That's where that's where, they, that's where it dropped off. He knew like, he knew our names and like, one of our friends. Right. But man, if, you, uh, if we, you took him to a back to school night and uh, he was done.
1: <laughs> tapped out, tapped out. So you know, yeah, go in go ahead, my Lizzie. research uh, of you, uh, Tim Conway Jr., I noticed that you really had the ability to crack up your dad. A- and what age did you realize that that, that was in your power?
2: You know, I, I think you're talking about the video that we did where I was talking about how I, I was depressed that a girl broke up with me. Yes. Is that the video? Yes. Okay. Then, Louise, you saw the one time I broke him up.
1: <laughs> oh, really?
2: No, I, he don't, was... know. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> time. Um, That's not true.
1: But,
2: but uh, I, I, I love coming on a show that not only has one choice, but two choices. If you don't like the first Jimmy Carter uh, vehicle, you can go on to the second one. Yeah. That's That's great. Sweet. Usually podcasts offer like one Jimmy Carter uh, selection for a day, but you guys went with two.
1: No, for us it's about volume. <laughs> let, let me ask you a question. I, I'm I'm interested
0: in the it's whole scenario volume. of sons trying to find their way in the world when they have a very famous and accomplished right. father. And. Did your did your father support you blossoming into this radio personality? Was radio just a way where you could be entertaining, but different from your dad? What, what was it, well,
2: Fritz? You probably made more money than your father, right?
0: Absolutely.
2: Okay, and Louise, you're probably up there as well. All right, now I could never do that. So there's something there's something comforting about the certainty of defeat, you know, where you know you're not going to be as famous or make as much money, so you can just sort of uh, hang in the weeds.
0: No, but you grew on your own. It was hard. Did you have any desire to do what he did to no, write you know, TV I, shows or really, be on Radio was great.
2: Look, you you have a broadcasting you know background. I'm, I'm, I think you did radio for a while, didn't you? Fifteen years. Yeah, yeah, fifteen years. And you know, with radio, you're looking when you do TV, like when you go in to do the news, uh, even even you know TV news. There's fifteen people telling you what to do. There's a director. There's a producer. Where to stand. What the hair should look like. Your wardrobe. You know, but what, what time you should be there. There's a lot of people in your life, but in radio, there's nobody in your life. It's just you, uh, the producer. You know, Bellio, uh, Mondo is another producer, and then you know whoever's uh, you know doing news that night. The show's over. There's no editing afterwards. There's no sweetening. It's uh, done, and you're gone. So I think I did it because I'm inherently incredibly lazy, and 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 don't work, like to work that hard. I like to work smarter, not harder. And so I found that radio was the one, uh, mm-hmm. you know, area of show business where you can get in, do it, and then go home, right? I mean, when I hear John and Ken, I, I follow John and Ken on, uh, on KFI, and I'm listening in the background, I hear them wrapping up. That's when I put a shirt on and go in and go to work.
0: <laughs> yeah, but that's deceptive because you have to stay on top of current events and stuff, and you're just so effortless at how you engage these topics on your show. It doesn't sound like you've overprepared for it. That's what I love. When That's I want right. You working- yeah. As a matter of fact, as,
2: that sounds exactly like my, my boss. It doesn't sound like you've overprepared, <laughs> um, but yeah, here's a very example. Uh, Fritz, um, when, when I was, um, and Louise, you know, I, I apologize. But, um, when I, when I'm on this, you know, two week mm-hmm. vacation for, for Christmas, um, I, I stopped reading and watching and, and all that stuff and, and really broke away from it. So when a buddy of mine said, hey, how about Alec Baldwin's wife, not being from Spain? I'm like, oh, I didn't see anything about that. I heard like a rumor about it. I didn't see anything about that. And she goes, yeah, I guess they pronounce cucumber differently in Boston than they do in L.A. Oh,
1: my God. Well, that makes her foreign. (laughs) (laughs) Now, when you get a call from the program director after your shift, is it good news or bad news?
2: Okay, that's a great question. Um, It's always bad news. OK, Always, it's always why did you F up? You're you're not very good. You're not very, you know, not being professional. Uh, you got to straighten up. You got to, you know, do this. Don't do that. Uh, can't you read the signs? But um, yeah, especially calls in the morning. If you get a call from a program director in the morning and Fritz, if you're, you know, producer, executive producer calls you in the morning at before eight, nine o'clock. always oh, trouble. Always mm. big apologies, suspensions, uh, you know, why'd you do this? You're going to be fired. Well, you know, HR, the whole run, you know. So when I see that phone ring up in the morning, I'm like, okay, this will be an interesting day. I'm no longer afraid of it. I just now think it's going to be interesting.
1: Okay. <laughs> is, it, is it often because you've offended a sponsor?
2: I'm, you know, one, once in a while, it's a sponsor, but I'm pretty good about that now. Mm. You know, instead of saying I went to, uh, you know, uh, a, a, by the name of the store, I'll say I went to a big box store, right? <laughs> and, and not okay. include the name of it because they're usually they're typically a sponsor. Okay. Um. So if you go after a big, like, let's say you know everyone is frustrated with cell phones, right, or or TV service or tracking down a package, for, you know, from one of the big delivery services. And if I go on the air because I've been on the phone for three hours with a certain company about my TV, I know that they're a sponsor, so I it, I, I can't you know you can't attack them but it's, but you have to also understand, you know, the, the frustration with corporate America, like when, when, you know, Louise, you're a little uh, younger than, than we are, but Fritz will remember this. When we grew up and you called a company to either complain or find out something, somebody picked up the phone.
0: Now you mm-hmm. can't get anybody on the line. You no. can't get anybody. No. Well, you know what you, you, you suffer from the same conundrum that commercial television does. And it's, It's the fact that, you know, streaming services and HBO and Showtime can be as outrageous or as dark or as profane as they want to be, whatever serves the content, because they don't have to answer to sponsors. That's right. You you can go out on a political edge, as you often do, but you always have to be aware of the guy that's going to be doing the mattress ad in three minutes on your show. So, that, <laughs> no, that's, that's a tough line to walk.
2: Yeah, it is true. But, you know what, I, I will say that the the sponsors that we have are terrific. They are, you know, I never, ever... Get somebody, you know, calling up saying, "Hey, I lost my company because of you." You know, yeah, they're, they're, they know they're, what
0: they're getting when they advertise on your show.
2: That that's right, that's right. And 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 knock on wood, you know, we're doing we're doing pretty good. Um, I think we had thirteen uh, endorsements, which is great for you know an evening you know radio show on AM. You know, they're not making AM radios in cars anymore, and and yet people are still listening. I'm always amazed it's when when people stop and say, hey, I listened to you on KFI because I'm doing the same show now that I did over at KLSX, the exact same show. But at KLSX in seven years there, it only one guy at Target said, I think I know who you are.
0: In Let me tell years. you something. I've told you this and I told Sharon your producer this. I get more response from doing appearances on your show <laughs> than I did for doing the 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 news in front of thousands more people
1: and it's an AM radio. I don't even know if the AM in my car still works. Well, here this is an important piece of information for for both of you gentlemen. Although Tim, you probably already know this. I I texted my cousin that I was on the radio with Mark and she said – she told me afterwards that she said, hey, Google or Siri or whoever the hell she talks to, her invisible friend. She said, hey, Siri, play KFI. So if you have one of those devices that eavesdrops on you, right. you can tell them you'd like to listen to AM radio. You no longer have to possess an AM radio to listen no, to AM that. radio.
2: That's right. Yeah, that. yeah. Most of it is streaming. But uh, here's a here's a great example of um, – of what Los Angeles, the rung on the ladder of of show business in Los Angeles, you know, there's movie stars, TV stars, uh, local, you know, uh, weather TV sports guys, there's athletes, there's politicians, you know, there's the guy that works at, uh, you know, loves ribs. And then there's radio. And, and, and so I went to Gelson's, the Gelson's I believe that Fritz probably has wandered into on Riverside and Laurel. I bet you've been there.
0: I have a mortgage in there. That's how much time I spend in there. <laughs> they,
1: they've got a chair. I,
2: I'm at the deli in there, and you know, 42, 43, 44, 45. Oh, that's me. And the guy says to me, he goes, "Hey," he goes, um, "You know, we're in, we're not in we're, we're getting trouble if we talk talk to celebrities." I go, "Okay, well then, don't do that." He goes, but can I can I ask you a question? I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." What do you got? And I'm thinking, oh, Bill Handel. What does he want to know about the show or anything? He's like. Does that guy over there look like David Spade? (laughs) Oh my God.
1: Is that that a true story?
2: It's a true story. It's the best. Oh, it was so great. But
1: David Spade was getting the same question about you (laughs) from the bakery guy. I've gotten
2: so much mileage over that that one incident. It happened like maybe eight years ago. And every time I do like a police benefit or for the firemen or whatever, I always bring that story up. None of them have heard it, which is great.
0: So you did the whole uh, career arc backwards. Most guys start in AM and then end up in FM. You went that's from right. internet to FM to AM. So talk about, the, t- talk about, and you started your broadcasting, for lack of a better term, career on the internet back when people were just trying to figure out how to do that. Talk about that. Right. Because it was not easy to garner an audience back then.
2: Well, that's why it, it actually was easy, because um, nobody had the ability to track any of it. So we we came up with a show called Late Net, right, on the If Network, and it was the first audio video talk show on the internet, 1995 96. So we get a uh, we send out a press release to People Magazine and saying, Hey, we got this new talk show. It's on the internet, and they said, How many listeners or viewers do you have every night? And I said, Worldwide, we have 450 thousand people listening or watching. We had zero. Right. Right. Zero. You can I mean, there wasn't one. data not then. But it,
1: theoretically, you had people that walked by their computer who could have, you know, heard it.
2: Not That's really, funny. because it was too big of a package to download. So it was impossible for anybody to download it. It would, it would, have, taken you, it would have taken you 17 hours to download five minutes, right? So the idea was
1: <laughs> like sort of doing a television show in 1948, when right. no one owned a TV show, uh, set, but you were putting on this extravagant production.
2: Right. So People Magazine does an article, uh, you know, big picture with me uh, under the table with the quarter on my neck, you know, something goofy. Right. Uh, but it, it looks like I'm trying to hang myself. And then I <laughs> entered Entertainment Weekly shows up then CNN and, you know, MSNBC and it takes off. And so, you know, we had a lot of publicity going for us, but we had no money coming in. So I ca- we called Budweiser. Did you have a said,
0: co-host? Just- uh,
2: we did. Yeah. We had a couple of guy named uh, Pat was a co-host uh, and I'm a not a guy sure he, named Pat. Yeah. Pat divine. One of the oh. funniest guys in the world. I love uh, Pat divine. Uh, and then I'll think of the other guy as well. But um, <laughs> so we called B- Budweiser and we said to Budweiser, Hey, um, we're going to do this for free. We're going to put Budweiser up on the logo of our, of our internet show. And it'll just sit there. You don't have to pay us or anything. We just want to, you know, uh, get your name out there. We uh, like that Budweiser is every once in a while. What do you, uh, and we'll just put it there. It'll live there forever. You don't have to pay us a dime. And Budweiser said, if you do that, we'll sue you. Right. Ooh. And I'm like, okay, I got to get out of this business. <laughs> I mean, if you can't give advertising away, I got to look for a way out. So I invited all the program directors from all the talk stations in LA to be, come on as guests on our show. Oh. And the only guy that showed up is a guy named Jay Clark and he showed up and then he, uh, we, we found out we had something in common. He loves sailing and, and I sailed as a kid, you know, uh, up at uh, Westlake uh, up in thousand Oaks and we went out sailing one day and I told him, all these stories, you know, the racetrack stories, you know, stories of my dad, my mom, and he thought it was, you know, fairly entertaining. So about three months later, he says, "You want to fill in for Pharrell on the bench on Christmas Eve Eve in 1996?" And I said, "Yeah, I'd love to." So I grabbed a friend of mine, you know, uh, uh, Fritz, you know, Doug Steckler, grabbed Steckler, and we went and did three hours. Then we fill in here, fill in there, and then we got a, a permanent uh, job on the station. But it was, it, it was because nobody had the ability to track how many, how few listeners we had on the internet is but, why we had to but
1: boss. still you were using a lot of ingenuity and you yeah, were putting, that was great. Y- you were doing a lot of strategizing and you were kind of way ahead of the curve. And that that shows a lot of a lot of genius.
2: I, I tell you Luis, uh, I wish that was true. It, it, it's hundred percent luck. It really truly is. Yeah, I mean it, it, uh, you know, it, it these these look it's it's harder to get a talk show in Los Angeles than it is to play for the Dodgers. There are more people playing for the Dodgers than there are local talk shows in LA yeah. Now, the Dodgers get pissed off when you say that because you're like, wait a minute, I spent my whole time, my whole <laughs> life training for to be on the Dodgers. But there are more guys that play for the Dodgers than have local shows. So,
0: I think part of your appeal is, um, as, I, as I mentioned, you're so down to earth. You have a very unshow business like existence you live in burbank <laughs> right. you and i both eat breakfast at denny's that's right
2: i ran and into I, prince at denny's and and he was so kind to to uh, offer to uh, pick up our meal one day yes and it, was it was nine
0: right. dollars i don't do that for everybody but you once. and i think this comes from your dad you tell me if i'm wrong about this you once told me that your dad was the same way famous people didn't necessarily hang out at your house but right like the below the line people the tech people the grips would all hang out. Those are the people your father befriended.
2: Well, because those are the people that, that you know, my dad was from Cleveland. Uh, so those are the people that, that were from the Midwest. You know, the guys in the lighting department, the guys, you know, the associate producer, the writers, whoever it was. The, the people from the Midwest are the people he really clung to because he had something in common with them. You know, he didn't really didn't have much in common with people who were from L.A. or New York. And so, yeah, around the house, I mean, you know, people find it strange. They say, how many, how often was Harvey Corman over at the house? And I could tell you maybe four or five times my whole life that uh, he popped by, but but those are showbiz friends. Somebody asked me, um, it was um, Don Knotts' daughter. She said, how often, um, she said, how often would would my dad come over uh, to your house? And I said, I don't ever remember that happening once, but my dad loved Don Knotts and my dad would would have told you everything he did in his life. He stole from Don Knotts everything. <laughs> I
0: mean,
2: well, what, what are, I mean, he he was you know the biggest Don Knotts fan in the world, and then had an opportunity to work with them on six different movies while they're on location. I mean, it was just a dream
0: come true for him. And your dad is uh, tell me if this is true, Tim Conway.
1: Tim Conway, stop right? it. <laughs> the
0: the uh, came out because your father was a TV host in Cleveland. That's right. And came out here with Ernie Anderson, the great right. voice of the Love Boat, and that's also right. the father of Paul Thomas Anderson, one of the great directors of our time. Is that that's true, right?
2: That's a true story. And uh, my dad met Paul Thomas Anderson's dad in Cleveland because my dad was driving an old car that only had first gear. Right. <laughs> so he would be going down Euclid, and it'd be. You're spinning the you know eight thousand rpms and this guy comes up rolls the window down and he goes does that effing thing have a second gear right? <laughs> and that turned out to be ernie anderson and they wow. worked together for a long time you know doing television uh in the cleveland greatest
0: voiceover guy ever what a set oh, of yeah. plants next to orson wells maybe the greatest voiceover guy ever
2: right do you know who he is louise he's did he did the you know the love
0: mode, Yeah. you know he uh, was the, the ABC staff announcer guy that did all the ABC shows.
1: I know him because Joseph Briano likes to do oh, that's ration right. of any, yeah.
0: yeah, but he yeah. does he does
2: the uh, you know, uh, Thursday, you know, there's um <laughs> <Auto> Man, then at <laughs> all <near> <laughs> but he was he was the best. I, and we still talk about him all the time. Um, he's just, you know, the, the greatest sense of humor uh, ever. as a matter of fact, I remember this um when when uh, Ernie Anderson, uh, his wife, Edwina, was going to leave him if he got caught smoking again, right? Because mm-hmm. later on in life, she wanted him to quit smoking and live forever. So she pulls up at I'm a Basket Case, which is a flower shop on Ventura Boulevard. <laughs> <laughs> and she owns the place and he's got a cigarette lit in the back. Now, so I'm back there with him and I'm only 15 years old. He goes, man, hold this fucking thing, William. Oh my so God. I, I'm holding the cigarette. She comes out and she goes, hey, I didn't know you smoked. So I take a hit off her. I'm right? like, eh, you know, just don't tell my dad. It'll bust, it'll bust my balls. So she goes back in and he looks at it and he grabs it from me. He goes, I told you not to put that in your fucking mouth.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry wow. if you can't
2: use that language here, no, but that's, no, sure. that's now, is that's it what true?
0: Is it true that at Ernie Anderson's funeral, uh, he ha- They have pictures of the deceased there, and he had a picture of himself in a dress. That was the primary picture at his funeral.
2: <laughs> that's true, right? And I and I and I think it was a sign also that said, and I don't know if it was original or not, but uh, if I see anybody crying at this event, I'll never speak to you again.
0: <laughs> oh, that's Aww. very funny. And <laughs> he was, was the announcer on your dad's TV show. Is that was that their connection or what?
2: Yeah, happened? well, no, they did in in Cleveland. They did a a movie wrap up show uh, where they do the ins and outs to movies. Uh, But they were playing, you know, uh, an hour movie, but they only did a 45 minute show. So they never got to the ending of any of the movies. So on Friday, (laughs) they would do the four endings that they had from Monday through Thursday and just show four endings of the movie. Oh, my God, that's funny. Did any
0: of
1: you did any of you kids want to do any performing, any professional show business as as children? Uh, I think
2: my, I don't know, but my, my sister, now, nah, my sister does wardrobe for some big commercials. Uh, she does Honda and, and, you know, Jack in the Box, some of the bigger commercials in town. Um, my brother, um, no, nah, not really. I mean, my, one of my brother owns two restaurants in Steamboat Springs. Uh, another brother is uh, living in Arizona, but no, nah, not really. I mean, nah, you know, it, it wasn't something that my dad also pushed on us because mm-hmm. he knew that, you know, if you go into show business as a kid. Uh, The chance of you coming out, uh, you know, uh, straight on the straight and narrow, having wife and kids and enjoying your life are almost zero.
1: But how was he with you uh, growing up and and pursuing this career? Was he good with that?
2: Yeah, he was he was okay with it. I mean, he never um, you know, it it was it was It was fun to have him on, um, you know, to to talk about uh, my relationship with my mom and, you know, my dad and the, you know, big, crazy family. We had a big, huge, crazy, you know, family, especially both sides were Irish and both sides drank. And I remember on a Christmas, uh, my Uncle Tom was in town and he got bombed. He had, you know, two quarts of uh, gin before dinner. And I remember I remember him falling into the Christmas tree. Right. And the presents, he fell into the Christmas tree and he's just at the bottom of the Christmas tree and he's passed out. And nobody helps him out. They, he's just, that's where he spent the evening, right? <laughs> oh, my goodness.
1: <laughs> Liquid Santa brought us.
2: <laughs> but look, it's, it's a stereotype, you know, that, you know, Irish are drinking and fighting. Look, the, the Notre Dame team is called the Fighting Irish, right? I mean, wow, you, know, yeah. you know, plug in any other stereotype and uh, see if you can get away with that, you know? Uh, it just who who it more... were your
0: radio heroes before you, or as you were starting your career?
2: Well, you know, I loved Rick Dees. Um, when, when, when Rick was doing his, uh, you know, his phony phone calls, mm-hmm. uh, I couldn't get enough of it. As a matter of fact, when I went to college, I w- went originally to Bowling Green, they kicked me out of there. So I went to San Diego state, uh, and you couldn't get kiss FM in San Diego state. It was too far. So I would two days a week on Tuesday and Thursday, I'd get up, get a coffee and a donut and drive to Dana point and sit on a bluff and listen to Rick Dees. Isn't that crazy?
1: Well, Rick Dees discovered me. Is that right? Yes. Cause I wrote the weekly top 40 for three years. Oh, okay. All right. I was just a a, a little. I, that
2: was I love that show.
1: Yeah, I, I was working for a show called Pia Magazine, and making making my way in Hollywood from Buffalo, New York, and he came on to co-host. Oh, that's right. He liked what I wrote for him, and so when he launched his own syndicated show, he hired me away, and that's oh, how that's, I wound up in radio.
2: All right, and you got to be honest with you, and you know, yeah. first bit time in business, show business, uh, you know, uh, pretty green. What was the paycheck every week?
1: So for Rick, oh, so here's what Rick would do. And uh, if you're sensitive, this is a trigger. This is triggering for people that are sensitive to emotional abuse. Uh, he, he paid me. 300- By the way, that,
2: that triggers me, that sentence. So
1: <laughs> He paid me $350 a week to write the weekly top 40 countdown. Wow on which he made a lot of money. And and he always promised me once the show does well, you'll get, you'll get a raise. And one day I was walking past the studio and he said, uh, hey, Planker, he said, you're going to find something extra in your paycheck this week. And I said, oh, oh, really, Rick?" He said, an additional R in your name. (laughs) (laughs) These were things that were funny to him. (laughs) That's great. You know, we
2: had him on a couple of weeks ago and he was scheduled to come on at 6.30. And he's been on, on with us probably about 10, 15 times. And six thirty rolls around, we can't get a hold of him, right? Seven, seven fifteen, seven thirty. Now I'm I'm starting to worry about him, right? He got into an accident, maybe fell down at his house because he's never ever late. So he finally calls us at eight o'clock. He's an hour and a half late, and off the air. I said, Hey, Rick, I was really worried about you. And he goes, Oh, don't. He goes, I uh, uh, I'm I'm never on time to to gigs that are free. <laughs> 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 ah,
0: perfect.
1: <laughs> he used great. to take the first hour of the of the morning show. And then he'd drive to work, you know, like, and there'd be someone in the car next to him listening to him, and <laughs> he <laughs> he loved freaking him out.
0: That's
2: great. Oh, I God. love the guy. I used to listen to him all all the time, man. I did you,
0: did he knows the story about you driving to Dana Point with coffee? Oh yeah, so that's yeah, a
2: great I, story. I tell him all the time because he keeps he keeps reminding me. Goes, tell me that Dana Point story again. It Makes me feel good.
0: You know that that you bring up a good point about. Um, about like the star system and radio it used to be and you did this too but you had to you had to that that's one of the drawbacks of being born and raised in a major market city you're spoiled about the quality of broadcasting and then you have to rise up through that if you can most people start in boise idaho and then work their way out right but but because of the internet and streaming and uh uh satellite radio now that whole farm system of radio where you learn who you were at a small station for no money, then worked your way up to a medium market station, then worked your way up to a large market station that created these huge personalities. Rick Dees and uh all the guys, you know Charlie Tuna and right. uh Howard all, Stern all, right. all yeah. the all those guys started in small Markets on low wattage radio stations. There's no way now for uh for for kids to figure out who they are. And then you have people now, thanks to you know syndicated radio, that are syndicating their shows to 25, 30 right. markets who aren't couldn't hold a candle to some of the <laughs> earlier personalities.
2: Well, right? I, I think you're right. I, there's a friend of mine, and you might know him, Lars Larson, up in Oregon, and he does uh, Portland, and he's syndicated throughout the the Northwest. Well. This is about four or five years ago. He says, uh, do you want to have dinner? I said, yeah, I'd love to. Right. So uh, I always like to pick uh, radio guys, brains, especially guys who are really successful. And so we go to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse.
0: The best steak ever. I love it.
2: Everything is in butter. You're going to live till you're 48 <laughs> and then it's going to be over. Um, but it's great while you're here. So we walk into Roots Chris and people jumping over counters to buy him a drink and a meal. We n- could never pay for anything there. Probably 30 people in there. Hey, come join my table. This is my mom. There's a guy listened to on the radio. Bob bada bing. It's it's incredible. Outside of LA, you know, these guys still have it and they're still number one and people still want to want to meet them.
1: And that's the thing too, Tim, is like there's so much showbiz in Los Angeles that you're on that rung, you know, below the Trader Joe's sample guy, right? But if you move to Cleveland or Des Moines, you're the celebrity. You're it.
2: That's right. That's right. Yeah. One of the reasons not to move, right? Um, because then it becomes uh, all about you. It, you it's don't great. want
1: free steaks?
2: No, no. <laughs> you you you, you want to keep a you want to keep a low profile, right? Uh, because look, Fritz can't go anywhere. Like if Fritz went into a porno shop, people would it'd be on the you know front page of the news <laughs> the next day. Yep, people people yep. be like, "Hey, I know that guy." He orders that
1: online. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that would be called out of context. Fritz in a porno shop. <laughs> What's wrong with this picture? <laughs>
1: so you're that's saying you know a, you that, can-
2: that's that's a, by the way that's a high sign to the producers. Cut that out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I like know. Oh, no.
2: So when you what? see
1: the future of audio entertainment, because now you have your 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 radio show, is that most of your listeners? How many of your listeners get the programming through the podcast?
2: Well, I would say, you know, the number one thing, like when you go to uh, an electronics store, the number one thing you see is, it. you know, you see a few TVs. I uh, see maybe a sewing machine, some flashlights. But the one thing you see everywhere are speakers, headphones, speakers, wireless speakers, sound systems, sound bars. And, and I think the future is about uh, sound. I don't think it's going to be, you know, much about picture anymore. I, but, You know, obviously you know i'm just hoping um but i think the way you get the radio and how many different ways you can get it like you can only get tv one way through your tv set but with with audio you can get through the radio you can get it streaming you can get the podcast you can get on a, on a on a wireless you can get it you know almost anywhere and so you know you can take it with you and which is great i think people will be on the go and you know and take the radio so i i would say maybe 40 or 50% of of our show is streaming or podcast wow wow and what's great about it is the advertiser can look at it and say, okay, there's, because, you know, listening online is an exact science, like listening on the radio, they, they sort of, you know, will take uh, a sampling of, mm-hmm. and they'll guess how many people are listening, but listening, people listening on stream, that's an exact science. They know exactly how many people are listening and how, for how long and where.
1: And they can swap the ads in and out too.
2: Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. A direct advertiser. Right. right.
1: Exactly. And, and I think that By the way, it's the, the whole. Louise, do you play, yeah. do
2: you play the bongos?
1: I play, I play the drums and, and percussion. Yes.
0: Oh, good. That's really cool. Yeah. Those aren't props back there, my friend. That's a percussion <laughs> system right back there. Yeah.
1: I just threw some stuff behind me in the zoom shot that would be a, but hey, I, so I, 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 I am a drummer. But, but, Go
2: ahead. I, I I love the fact that you know some of these guys and Fritz, you know these guys, and, and I think you agree with me. These guys who are at home doing the news and then all their awards are behind them is there's something that. there's something going on there, right?
0: Yeah, right. Well, that was not an easy move for me because all mine are in the garage.
1: <laughs> hey, I, I, I love Fritz it. likes to feature the fax machine. No. <laughs> I rotate out my
0: grandchildren and a couple of uh, deceased showbiz. That's an expensive people that lamp.
2: It's over your left shoulder. <laughs> oh, it yeah, is. sure. There's it nothing
0: is. in this house that's expensive. <laughs> but I love uh, some stories. that, it, and, and this is part of you learning to keep your feet on the ground. You have a spectacular story about tough love from your dad and the story about oh, how baseball? your father reacted when you pitched a no-hitter for the Encino Little League. Oh. What happened?
2: Yeah, uh, I so I'm you know uh probably in 5th 6th grade and i had a pretty decent arm right um from throwing the ball around with my dad my whole life and you can tell when kids never throw the ball around with dad because it looks like they're throwing with their off arm right mm. you know you know that kind of crap yeah. so i was able my dad um was was a pretty good baseball player and pretty good athlete and he showed me how to throw the baseball and he would and he'd play with you know catch with it whenever we wanted always said yes always said yes so in sixth grade, uh, I'm am uh, playing for the Red Sox uh, at West Valley Little League, and I pitch a no hitter, right? And six wow. innings, you know, it's a shorter game because we were only in sixth grade. Six innings, <laughs> eighteen up, eighteen down, no hits, no runs, no errors. It was a perfect game, right? Wow. So my dad had to work, right, because he's you know he's feeding. He has nine breakfasts, nine lunches, and nine dinners every. Day he wakes up for starters. That's just the start. That's in the gate. So he comes home from the Carol Burnett show. And I said, Hey dad, I said, I pitched a no hitter today at, for the Red Sox at uh, West Valley little league. And I think I got something here. And he goes, okay. He goes, Hey, why don't you sit down here? He said, he looks me right in the eye. He goes, you're not that good. <laughs> he said, you're pitching to kids who are never going to make their junior high, let alone their high school team. Right. These kids are out there just because they want something to do, and parents uh, want to get them out of the house for a little while, a little exercise. You don't got what it takes to be in the major leagues. And I thought, oh, okay, that's, uh, didn't, I didn't see it going that direction, right? <laughs> um, but ultimately, he was right, you know, because I didn't have, you know, the experience or the body or the commitment to, to play in the major leagues. I just didn't have it. I just, I'm, not, I'm not built that way. And so he saved me. You know, five or six years of getting up at five a.m., throwing the ball, going to school, coming home, throwing the ball, right? Yeah, he didn't want you to create a false
0: dream for that's yourself exactly and then get right. your that's exactly. well, he, st- he could
1: have opened. You know how you want to open with something, you know, like hey, something honey, complimentary. That's wonderful. But let's keep this in perspective. No, nothing for this guy. Okay, good. And, but, okay, but the, something the that other something I've read about this children of celebrities. It's like an interesting phenomenon, and it doesn't happen. In most households, friends come over, and the kids are the star of the show. It's like, look at, look at Jamie. Right. Look, you know. But when you're the child of of a celebrity, anyone who walks in, whether it's someone delivering a package or someone, a plumber, they're they're in Tim Conway's house. And so, how do kids adjust to never being the celebrity in their own home?
2: Well, I, I think it's That's a great question. Yeah, that is a great question. I haven't even thought about it, but uh, I I think you know. Uh, my dad's vibe, like when, when we were, he was doing the Carol Burnett show, they had 40 to 50 million people watching that show every week, right? So when we went to Disneyland or, didn't, or to, uh, you know, Jerry's Pizza or Bob's Big Boy, whatever, he would, he would have 10 to 15, maybe 20 people come to the table to say, can I have an autograph or take a photo, whatever. And my dad never turned any of those down, right? Never said, we're eating, you know, do you mind? He would sat there and talked to him for 15, 20 minutes. And, and he always said, If it wasn't for those people, we wouldn't have this house and that car and this lifestyle. So you have to always remember it's only because of them that we have all this stuff. Right. And then we have this lifestyle. And so I think that when people came in, uh, you know, my my dad wasn't and wasn't different. Like when you go to celebrities homes, they'll turn it on. Right. And they'll turn it off when people are over. But my dad was the same. Right. You know, you know, the guy you talk to the guy who was doing the plumbing the way he would talk to, uh, you know, the head of CBS. Right. He just never had an on off switch that way. As a matter Mm -hmm. of fact, my dad couldn't get out of a conversation. So when he would go to a party (laughs) and the valet Parker would say, uh, hey, I really enjoyed that McHale's Navy. My dad would talk to the valet Parker for three hours, get back in his car and go home.
1: (laughs) Maybe that's what he preferred doing.
2: Uh, yes. And I also had to teach him how to get out of a conversation, okay. which is great. Anybody can use this and it works every time compliment and move, right? You got some funny crap there.
1: So See I, I'll tell you a Ricky <laughs> story, which you'll appreciate since you, you love the guy. So this is how we would get out of uh, a conversation with people that were visiting the station. <laughs> he wouldn't. <laughs> he was just like your dad. He did not know how to do it. So he would say. I'll be right back, and then he'd leave, and he would never come back. I, I'm, with, I'm with the people. I'm with the. When's he coming back? Like he, he's not. He's not coming. And I was like, Rick, just say I'd love speaking with you. It was great to see you. I, I'm, I've got to run. He didn't That's think great. that he was you know, they didn't think that was an option. Right. You can't let anybody down.
2: Yeah, I get that I get that at some of these uh big box stores, right? Um <laughs> like uh like if you're at a uh I don't know, um a place called uh Best Buy, right? And these guys are not they're not working on commission, so when they say I'll be right back, it's over. See? Ya. <laughs> it is over. Um I, I will. Uh, it, one of the funnier things that is uh, happened to me, you know, most of it's at the racetrack. As a matter of fact, this sound effect, I don't think you can hear this. Uh, dong!
1: can you hear that <laughs> yes okay that's from the
2: racetrack that means two horses are coming down the stretch uh, i mean you know, nine horses are way in the back two horses are coming down the stretch and it's five eight eight five five eight five eight and you'll hear the old timers say you know we got ourselves big a big dog. right <laughs> um but i would say about 80 percent of the stuff that we that i do on the air is from the racetrack and i remember you know i hate going to the racetrack with guys that have never been there before fritz you've been there right yes Okay. Thank
0: you. I don't know what I'm doing. I just like to hang out.
2: Yeah. But uh, when you go with new guys, you know, they have a million questions and it's a pain in the ass. So I went with Doug Steckler. He's never been in the racetrack. He goes, let's go. Let's go. go." I said, screw it. Okay. We'll go. Go to the racetrack with him. And he says, what do I do? I said, you bet $2 to say $2 to win on the five horse, get a ticket. If it wins, you win. So he bets $2 to win five horse. Boom. It's over. He comes in fifth, right? He loses. So he goes back to the window and I'm in front of him. And, and I said, I said, Hey, Steck, take this ticket back to the window and get your money back. He goes, what? He goes, how do they make money around here? He goes, ah, eh, hot dogs, beer, entrance, and all. So Sean, who's the teller I've known since I was two, I said, this a-hole in behind me is going to ask for his money back. Here's $2. Oh just God. give it to him. Right? So he gives him a ticket. He goes, hey, there's a bad ticket. I lost the race. He goes, oh, I'm sorry, uh, sir. Here's your $2 back. Uh, better luck next time. So we did that for two or three races, right? Every single time, same thing. And then I look at Steck and I go, hey, Steck, a lot of people don't know you can return these tickets, right? All of a sudden, he's on the floor grabbing tickets. (laughs) Oh, no. Putting him in a big brown paper bag,
1: right?
2: Goes and throws him up on a different teller, throws him up on the counter, goes, I lost uh, all these races. Give me my money back. And they go, we don't don't do that here. He goes, "You, you don't do that here. You're doing it like it. And then threw his ass out of the track.
1: Wow. So about horse right racing, the door. G- g-
0: tell tell them
1: diabolical.
0: Tell them your father's <laughs> definition of child abuse. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Fritz. I wish I'd have you all on the show because I always forget these stories. I never get yeah, to ask you, you any questions on the
2: show. <laughs> Um, back together again, you know, by uh, <laughs> Fritz uh, Coleman and Conway. So, um, it was I was in uh, sixth grade. This is Palmer's class, and my I was not doing well in math. So my dad takes me out of, out of uh, a Friday school all day. And he takes me to the track. He goes, I'm gonna show you how to do uh, you know, math here at the track and everything about the track is numbers, the weight of the jockey, the cl- the, on you know, the clock, the time, the, you know, the distance, uh, what the bet's going to pay, how much the bet, you know, should pay if this, you know, everything is about everything is numbers, everything. Um, and so, you know, I learned a little about how to do math and numbers and, and I actually got, quite good at it. The only one thing I know how to do is add a, you know, a few numbers from the racetrack. So next day, Ms. Palmer's class. And she said, okay, it's uh, speech day today. Uh, uh, Billy Ray, Matt McDaniel, and Timmy Conway, you're up. I'm like, Oh shit, I got nothing. Right. I totally forgot. So I look at my backpack <laughs> and I see that there's a racing form, right? I pull it out. And I Like, Oh thank God, there's a racing form. So I teach the, the class how to box and exact it right? They're in sixth grade. Yeah. And I, I go, you know, if you like five, three, go three, five, five, three. So if the five comes in first, you win. If the three comes in first, you win both ways, right? Speech is over principal's office, right? Drags me to the principal's office and the principal calls home and thank God my dad answered, right? If my mom answered it, I, she still would have been hitting me today. So my dad answers and the, the principal says, You know, teaching your sixth grader how to box an Exacta is borderline child abuse, right? And my dad says, "Uh, "Let me tell you what child abuse is." He has it five three. It comes in three five, and he didn't box the exact. (laughs) Isn't that great? Instead of getting pissed, you know, the guy saved me uh, a lot, right? A lot. That's beautiful. God,
0: that's so funny.
2: Yeah, that was kind of that was kind of cool.
0: What well, What are the best times for you as a radio host? I mean, because you six thirty you don't you don't always <laughs> <laughs> ten thirty at night when you're on the way home. <laughs> right. But uh, but I, I mean because you have topical stuff you you have politics. It's not everything you do, but it is are, are the best times for somebody in your position when there's a huge national crisis like we have now? So there's lots to talk about, or right. is it better? when you can talk about whatever you want to talk about?
2: Well, uh, that's a great question. It's um, you never want to capitalize on, on other people's, you know, misfortune, um, you know, with this like pandemic that's going on, but you also need to get the facts out there uh, as well. But I, I don't really like talking about it because John and Ken talk about it and there's nobody better than those guys, right? So I come in afterwards, I have to do something different. If I give you the same information that John and Ken gave you, it's over, you know, you're gone. So we like to keep it a little lighter than telling you the world's coming to an end, because what what news does so well is scares the hell out of you, right? And and so we like to try to bring it back, put it on perspective. Like for instance, here's a great example. You know, people are are deathly afraid of dying in earthquakes, right? I don't know if Louise, if that's you or not.
0: You can put me at the top of the list, right? There. Top of the list. Okay.
2: Okay. All right. <clears throat> so between 1994 and 2014. There was a 20-year period, right, where only two people died of an earthquake up in uh, Northern California, up in wine country. There was a big earthquake there, and two people, you know, building fell on them, and it was over. So two people died in that 20-year period. Well, in that same period, O.J. Simpson killed two people, right? So you had the same chance of being killed by O.J. Simpson as you did in dying from an earthquake. (laughs) And yet you didn't go to bed every night thinking, oh, Christ, I hope O.J. doesn't get me.
1: See, this is right. also math.
2: That's right. Oh, that's o'clock. so right. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't know that about you, Fritz. You really get the crazy, huh?
0: Let me tell you something. I, 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 the, part of the problem was during the Northridge quake, which was right. in 1994, I was in this home. Oh, I wow. had just had a hernia operation two days before that. So wow. I was just at the beginning of a serious Percocet problem. Uh, I was on Percocet. So right. this earthquake hit. And my house is backed by my <laughs> swimming pool. And what woke me up that night, c- because I had to take these painkillers uh, before I went to bed, because it was the sure. only way I could sleep from this awful pain. When the earthquake hit at 417 in the morning or whatever it was, what woke me up was not the tumbler was not the shaking. It was the water from my swimming wow. pool lapping over me. I had French doors oh on, my the, God. Uh, on my bedroom. The doors opened, a tsunami comes over the top of me, and what woke me up was water waking me up. And I I will tell you, uh, I was so severely traumatized that I wouldn't turn the lights off in my house once they returned for a year. And I would go to sleep at night with CNN on low volume. I couldn't stand silence and I couldn't stand darkness for a year. Now, I'm not afraid of anything. I ski, I rollerblade, I do all kinds of stuff. So I talked to a shrink about it, and he said, well, the problem was that you were sedated you had taken Percocet before you oh, okay. went to sleep. So when you experienced that trauma, you had to fight five or six times as hard to get into your fight or flight syndrome, wow. which would have been your natural reaction. So you had PTSD from your experience because you were anesthetized. Wow. And, I, and I really learned a lot about myself. And now I'm, I'm not bad about it, but for a long time, it was really crazy. And That's I'll tell you, another, thing. I, I was in severe pain after that happened because of my operation. After that earthquake hit, I went over to my children's home to make sure they were okay. They went back to bed in like a half hour. Right. It's no big deal. I, I I cleaned up my house. I uh, went and checked on all my elderly neighbors. I didn't feel one bit of wow. pain after that earthquake, until about a week later, and then I collapsed in pain, and I oh went God. back. So I really, uh, uh, I, I learned a great psychological lesson in that whole time. So that's why I'm afraid of quakes, but not yeah, so I know, much anymore.
2: I, I totally get it. I was the same guy, because, you know, for a year after that quake, I went to bed with uh, shoes, socks, and my lo- and my, my jeans on. And I just, you know, it's was uncomfortable. I, I, but that's I understand
0: I it. I understand it. Um,
2: but that would be wild. You know, 68 people... You know, died because of a building collapsing on him, and one guy in the valley drowned uh, during right. the you know the, right.
0: the, the quake. I, 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 that was my biggest fear, being the headline on the eleven o'clock news. With I have no a, makeup. I have or... a
1: really good earthquake story. If we, if we were here in Los Angeles, we all have one. But the night before, there had been some event that I was covering for a premiere, and I was backstage, and we were recording it, and uh, for radio, and Gary Coleman was c- covering the event for somebody and his his recording machine broke down and i said hey at the radio end of things we don't jockey for position like the photographers do if we all share tapes if you, call me monday i'll i'll get you i'll get you a dub oh really okay So then the earthquake happens. And, and, you know, two days later, I go in to assess the damage in my office. And it was like someone had taken what was on one wall and thrown it against the other wall and taken what was on this wall and thrown it against the... And we're all kind of dazed and walking through rubble and not knowing how to even bend down to pick up because we, we would... It's all glass. And, you know, where do you even begin? And it's just this like kind of like dystopian... You know, post apocalyptic (laughs) skates out of which emerges Gary Coleman saying, Hey, can I get that dub?
0: (laughs) Hey,
2: yeah, the show goes on. That's great, Tim, I man. love
0: we, we loved having you on. I've been oh, really looking best, forward to you you, you, it. You've on been for four so supportive. You, you you've uh, you've been so supportive of me personally over the year when I was working at Channel Four and. Well, friends so, be,
2: be, be, before you get into a, a long thing on, on how great won't be that you are, long. it was, I was um, just about. Friends. <laughs> but but I uh, there there is nobody in show business that I think is closer to my dad, humor wise, personality wise, and kindness. Than you are and i've said that to you before on the air and, wow. I, and 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 by the way you cannot find tape of me saying about that about any anybody else
0: well i'll yeah. tell you that that means a lot to me oh, i that's appreciate lovely. i appreciate our friendship i'm so glad you came on because it was a real busman's holiday now you have to go talk for four hours on your own radio station or are right. you now, still off now are you on vacation
2: uh, yeah i'm still on vacation so oh, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm putting in for this uh day uh, <laughs> this will be a work day <laughs> uh, but uh, because it does, you know, it does, uh, you know, uh, promote the station. But Fritz, um, who else have you had on, or who's coming up with uh, guests for your show?
1: The well, of the guy on your hat.
0: <laughs> oh, is that right? Oh, is that how, right? How come you have the USS Ronald Reagan? You know, I was stationed on an aircraft carrier for four years, and the Reagan is like the latest manifestation of aircraft carriers. Yeah,
2: I did it in honor of you. Uh, I knew you were a Navy man, and uh, sure I, you I wanted to throw your uh, the cap on. That was,
0: had- C- that was CVN... Let me see your... Tilt your head down. That is CVN 60... 70, what is it? I was on CVA uh, 67, meaning the ship was commissioned in 1967, and CVA meant uh, attack aircraft carrier conventional, but Ronald Reagan was a nuclear attack aircraft carrier commissioned in 79 or something. Anyway... We'll rattle, off, really... we'll
1: rattle off for him the impressive list of guests we've had. Uh, okay. Yes, we've had Michael Reagan, Henry Winkler, Keith Morrison, Josh Mangowitz, uh, a couple of guys
0: from the Watergate era.
1: <laughs> yeah, a lot of historians, and uh, of mm-hmm. course Tim Conway Jr. I'm going to read our closing credits. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where we are Media Path Podcasts. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at podcast at gmail.com. And I want to thank our guest, Tim Conway Jr., who's unfrozen himself. Oh, there we go. No no problem. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Demanda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Alex Gilroy, and you. I am Louise Polanker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the Media Path.
0: That was it. Those are the parting words. <laughs> I do. Do the best, my friend. Enjoy your vacation.
2: I really appreciate it. Thanks for asking me on you know, sure. it's, it's in the middle of uh, you know, two weeks off, and it's
1: nice to get back and uh, you know, talk with You are so good, and thank you. It was absolutely delightful.